Hello everyone, this is Pastor Damien. You're listening to Sermon Audio from New City, Orlando. At New City, we believe all of us need all of Jesus for all of life. For more resources, visit our website at newcityorlando.com. Thanks for listening. So please join me out loud with this prayer of illumination. Almighty God, as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth. Shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen indeed. Would you do it, Lord? This morning's scripture reading is from Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. Please remain standing if you can. The text will be behind me. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. If you could go anywhere in the world, where would it be? I want you to conjure that up in your imagination right now. Where, where would it be? If you could visit anywhere... Uh, and, and enjoy it, whether maybe you're going for the, the culture, the vibrancy, the liveliness of that particular location, or, or maybe it's a space where you can rest and relax and be rejuvenated. Maybe it's a place that has such natural created beauty that you would be in awe and wonder. Where would you go? Where would it be? For my wife, I think it would be Greece. For me, Mount Rushmore. I just like American history. Just kidding. Uh, but, but, but for Paul, what we'll see in our text today is it would be Rome. And Paul's not weird, actually, like Mount Rushmore would be. He's actually uh, very similar to many other people in his day and age. Anybody who lived in Paul's day and age would have wanted to see the eternal city, the hub of humanity that was the city of Rome, the center of the known world at the time. But, but Paul didn't want to go to Rome as a tourist. Paul wanted to go to Rome as an evangelist. Paul wanted to go there because Paul has, a, has twin joys in his life. The gospel and people. He wants to go to Rome so he can make known the good news, which is what gospel means. This message about the life and death and resurrection of his king Jesus 
And he wants to go to Rome to be among the people who are transformed by that good news. You see, because what happens is wherever the gospel is planted, up grows a people around that gospel, a fruitful people, who, who then stand as a counterculture to the city that they're in, and they bear fruit among their neighbors. And that's exactly what we see happened at the church at Rome. What's amazing about Rome is, is that the gospel spread there before Paul could get there. In other words, it was unlikely that an apostle brought the good news to Rome. It was probably an average Joe, average Jane, somebody like you or me, that brought the gospel to the hub of humanity, as I said. And so Paul, most of his letters that he's written, he's been there, he's planted that church, and he's left, and now he's turning around and writing back to them about things that he wants to shore up. The letter to Rome is different because he's not been there yet. So Paul is writing forward, hoping that one day he'll be able to get there. And so why that matters is, is it, it's part of the reason why Romans is such a comprehensive, such a whole letter. We get so much of what Paul thought was the, the core of Christianity, what he made sure every church that he planted was aware of and lived in light of. We get that in the book of Romans because he hasn't been there yet. He doesn't have years of preaching and teaching and living among them to reflect on with them like he does in Galatia. And so this is a significant aspect of Paul's letter to the Romans. And so I want to look at this text together. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 8 through 17 together under two headings. The first one is, I want to look at what kind of people does the gospel create? What kind of people does the gospel create? And the second one is, what kind of gospel creates this people? What kind of gospel creates this people? Now, last week, Damien had, had three subpoints, And to me, that opened up a whole new world. It was a new fantastic point of view. And so because of that, I thought I would do the same thing. And so I have somewhere between one and nine subpoints this morning. <laughs> so bear with me. Uh, I promise it was intended to help you track along with the text. If you would, look with me at Romans chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says this, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Pause. The gospel creates a people of thanks. A people of thanks. Paul just starts off and he, he knows to give credit where credit is due. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. God's the one at work in your midst and I can't help but overflow with gratitude for that. You see, because the gospel creates a people who, who uh, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, um, who sees anything good in you? Who sees anything different, unique about you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? In other words, the gospel puts us in a place where all good that we have, we just offer back gratitude for it. We say, we don't deserve this. It's been said that the, the worst moment in an atheist's life is when they're thankful and have no one to thank. Contrast that with the life uh, and really the death of, of a hero of mine, a guy named Dallas Willard, who died recently in the last few years of cancer. And as he was dying, he had no pain medication, and he very lucidly slipped into death, and his last words that he breathed were, thank you. Thank you. 
you know anything about his life, it's, it's fitting he lived a life of gratitude for the abundance that God gives to his people. So the gospel creates a people of thanks. But the gospel also creates a people of renown, a people of renown. Look again at verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Why, Paul? Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Remember, the, the, all of you, these Roman Christians that Paul's talking to, that he's writing to, they live in the political and economic center of the known world. And so as they're there, they are living out obedience to King Jesus by faith. I get that phrase from later in Romans 16, verse 19, and, and really only a few verses earlier. In verse 5, he says that he wants to see, to bring about the obedience of faith. In other words, it's, a, it's an obedience that springs from belief that Jesus is alive and well and that he's living and active in our midst. And listen, the Roman Christians needed to, to have that kind of confidence in order to obey Jesus where they were. For instance, then, as it is now, it was scandalous to say something like, hey, there's only one God and, and it's our God, not yours. It was scandalous back then to think that hookup culture was actually dehumanizing. That's not a new thing. Back in, in, in Rome, in ancient Rome, it, it was scandalous to not worship at one of the cults of the gods or to worship the earth or, or maybe even the most tempting thing was to, to worship the state. Caesar is Lord. And so these Roman Christians lived out the, the three-word worldview of every Christian, which is Jesus is Lord. They were a living demonstration that Jesus is Lord on Caesar's front porch. And their faith became famous for it. And it spread through the known world. And so the gospel creates a people of renown, but it also creates a people of prayer. Look again at verse 8. Paul begins by thanking God. That's prayer. Go look at verse 9. It says, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul thanks God. Paul mentions them before God. Paul asks God to work out his travel plans. Constantly praying. Now, Paul uses language like, without ceasing. This isn't sending up thoughts and prayers for the Roman church. Paul is calling God himself to bear witness that he prays consistently and continually for the Roman Christians. And I love Paul's prayer life. It's this, this perfect mixture that we saw in Jesus's prayer life of, of saying, God, this is what I want, and yet your will be done. Right, he says, I make it known to God. My intention is, my longing is, my eagerness is towards coming to be with you. And I'm praying that it's God's will that that comes about. Both and. So in our prayer lives, when we talk to God, we, we are invited to make our desires known to him. This is what I want, God. And then we're called to yield those desires to his will, trusting in his goodness and wisdom on our behalf. Paul does that here. But I'm actually helped by something here. Paul uses a word, he says, I always, without ceasing, mention you in my prayers. Like, that's just helpful. He didn't say, I pontificate about all your needs before the throne of God on the daily. 
He says, I mention you. Like, like, in other words, I just bring you before God, and he's a father who knows what, what we need before we ask. And so I just mention you before him, and I let him kind of take care of the details. I'm actually really helped by that because there's a lot of you. And I believe it's my God-given calling to pray for you by face, by name, by body, by soul, like all of you. And Paul mentions Christians in his prayers. I can mention you in my prayers, holding you up before God, knowing that he knows what we need before we ask. That's actually really good news for those of us who want to pray for people that we love, that we care about. We can mention them, merely mention them in our prayers, and God takes care of the rest. And so we see, not only does it create a people of prayer, but in verses 11 and 12, look there, it creates a people of give and take. A people of give and take. What I mean by that, look in verse 11. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So when I say one of give and take, what I mean is the gospel creates this humility, this willingness to be interdependent. A gospel mutuality, you could call it. This is the Apostle Paul, arguably the greatest Christian that's ever lived. And he needs this fledgling group, this fledgling band of believers. By the way, as far as I understand, Paul never uses the word church in the book of Romans. So, so maybe he doesn't even believe that they're established as a church yet. They're just this group of believers. He says, I can't wait to be among you because I need to, I need to gain from you. I look forward to being helped by you. A friend of mine last night at 9, 10 p.m. Eastern uh, texted me, but he lives in Turkey, and it was 5, 10 a.m. He texted me last night, and he said, hey, man, I just thought I'd send you this quote by a commentator I really like, because I know you're preaching on that text from Romans 1 tomorrow, or maybe it was today for him. Um, and he said, I just want you to know I've been thinking about you, praying for you. Uh, I, I hope that the study's been really fruitful. And the quote was great. It says something like this. What Paul's talking about here when he says that there's this spiritual gift that he wants to, to strengthen and to be mutually encouraged by, we don't know what that spiritual gift was. But we can assume it was at least this. There are few things more encouraging for a believer in Jesus to see the life of faith of their fellow brothers and sisters. And so the quote said something to that effect, that the encouragement, the mutual encouragement here is Paul just can't wait to see that there's other people that believe the gospel like he does, that it works out and makes a difference in their daily life. And he wants them to see his life. And so I texted my friend back and I was like, this is amazing. The irony is, is that I'm really mutually encouraged by you thinking about me, praying for me. And so my response was, so meta, so helpful. Thanks a lot. And it's just like kind of remarkable. I'm encouraged by Mark's life in Turkey. He, he lays it on the line for Jesus, and it's incredible. And he thought about me to text me that. And I was a little bit anxious about this sermon. It was kind, and it was helpful in that moment. And so I can remember just a couple of weeks ago, I was sitting there worshiping, and I just happened to look over my shoulder. Sometimes I do that because I'm really actually encouraged to see other people believe this stuff. And so I looked over my shoulder and I saw somebody here in our congregation who, who is going through a level of suffering that few of us might ever know. And she had her eyes closed and a smile on her face and her hands lifted up like this and she was singing about the goodness and the faithfulness of God. 
And in the moment, I don't know who preached that day, maybe me, maybe Damien. In the moment, that, pre- that was a sermon to me. A sermon of encouragement as I saw her bear witness to the goodness of God in the fire. That's what Paul's talking about here most likely. I can't wait to be among you, Romans, so we can be mutually encouraged. Because the gospel creates a culture of give and take. It's why we have the blessed practice as part of our common rhythm. Asking the Spirit of God, hey, who can I reach out to? Who can I send a a text? Who can I encourage with words or a gift or service or time? I'm encouraging, challenging you to do that today. Think of somebody in this congregation, somebody that you know that actually lives a life of faith that's encouraging to you. Send them a message and say, hey, I'm grateful for you. I just want to bear witness to the fact that I'm mutually encouraged by your life before Jesus. That's the blessed practice. But the gospel also creates a people of gospel duty. A, key, a people of gospel duty. Look at verse 13 with me. Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why does Paul want so badly to go to Rome? Because he's got gospel work to do there. Verse 15 where it says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. The the Greek word is really just gospelized. It's gospel in a verb format. I can't wait to gospelize you all. And I think that's actually helpful because, because what it means is that there's a, there's a robustness to the gospel work besides mere evangelism, although I think that really matters. Paul is eager to be a, among the Roman Christians so that he can help them bring their life together more in line with a crucified and risen Savior. But Paul's also looking forward to being around the Roman Christians in the non-believing city around them so that he can see them come to know Jesus, the crucified and risen Savior. He wants to do gospel work in their midst. And so he uses a word in verse 14. He says this, I am under obligation. He could have said, or or, or you could translate that, I am bound by the gospel. I am indebted to do this, to come and speak about Jesus wherever I can. Now one commentator, John Stott, gives this helpful illustration. He says, The way in which Paul is indebted here, the way in which he owes something is like if if a friend of yours gave me $1,000 and they said, hey, go give this to Jane. Friend of yours gives me $1,000. Now, I'm actually indebted now. I'm not indebted to you because I didn't borrow anything from you. I'm indebted to that friend who gave me the $1,000 to give to you. That's how Paul is indebted. That's the obligation he is under. Um, In other words, Jesus himself has entrusted to Paul this good news. And Paul can't help himself but to dispense that debt, to, to actually take it where it has to go. He's been entrusted with this gospel. That's why he's under obligation. And so I know that duty is a four letter word. I know it. I know that we don't like it, I know it makes us bristle. But Paul sees this not as optional to make Jesus known to non-believers. Like you're not a varsity level Christian if you share the gospel with people. You're disobedient if you don't. 
Paul knows that there is an obligation to make Jesus known to those who do not yet know him. And yet, listen, it is a duty, it is an obligation, but listen to his language. I long to come be with you. I am eager. I have intended time and time again, like, he can't wait. So that duty is also one of desire. He is, there's an eagerness for him to come be among people so he can tell them about Jesus. And that's the way that Paul shows us that that the gospel actually implicates us with our neighbors. Jesus says that the the rightful response to the good news is to love the Lord your God with all of yourself and to love your neighbor as yourself. But here's an important word, love your neighbor. There's something, there's a possessiveness there. There's a, a mutual belonging that you have to your neighbor. You are implicated in the life of those who are near with need. You're gospel bound. That's a really important word for us. We don't get off the hook of loving our neighbors and speaking to them about Jesus. It's of utmost importance. I know a few stories more powerful to describe what it means to be gospel bound than the story of two young Moravian missionary men in 1732. They had heard that there were thousands of Africans that were enslaved on the island of St. Thomas. And they were so moved. They had similar Paul's eagerness and longing and intention. They were so moved by it that when they found out that maybe the only way that they could get to that island is by selling themselves into slavery, they decided to go. And as their their boat was being pushed off from the dock, they saw their community. And they were part of a really rich community. And they saw their community. And as they were drifting away from the dock, one of them famously shouted, May the lamb who was slain receive the full reward of his suffering. In other words, there is no other way for Jesus to get the people he purchased with his own blood into the kingdom except for us to be enslaved and sell ourselves so that we can go there and make Jesus known. And it was an obligation and it was a desire. Duty and desire going together in this burden to share the good news with people that don't know it yet. What kind of gospel creates this kind of people? I'm glad you asked. That's my second point. Look with me at verse 16. First, it's a gospel of power. It's a gospel of power. Look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Like, why would Paul mention being ashamed of the gospel if there wasn't a temptation to be ashamed of the gospel? And and I would argue that both the gospel message and being a gospel messenger are both, they both put us in a situation where we might feel ashamed. Because they are both scandalous and offensive, both there and then and here and now. I mentioned this earlier, but, but today even, to say, hey, there's only one true and living God and every other God is either a man-made idol or a demon. Does that go over well at dinner parties? Or we might be those who say, uh, hey, Jesus Christ, this, this Palestinian Jew uh, who, who lived in the first century, he actually was crucified on a Roman execution implement. And then he came back to life, and now he's alive and well 2,000 years later. Oh, and by the way, that's the hinge of history. 
It's the most important event in human history. That doesn't go over well. Or hey, by the way, the reason he had to be crucified, the reason for the cross is, is that you are so far gone. Your problem is so, so beyond repair that the son of God himself had to bleed out on a piece of wood in order to rescue you back because of how evil you really are. Does that go over well? Oh, and after he was executed, three days later, um, you know, he flatlined and he was dead for a little while. Now he's actually alive. He's actually got lungs. He breathes. His heart's beating again. He's living. He's, he's doing well. He's on the move. He's active. Um, and because he was raised again, um, he's actually been lifted up to the role of the highest authority. We call him the king of kings. And that means that you don't belong to yourself. In fact, everything that is yours belongs to him. And the way you think and live in the world is totally in submission to him or rebellion to him. And so your politics, your sexuality, the way you spend your money, all of that belongs to him. Does that go over well? Oh, and by the way, he's coming back. And when he does, he's going to judge everybody. He's going to judge everybody, and he's going to say, hey, anybody who has bowed the knee and really bowed the heart to me, you will belong to me forever. Anybody who hasn't, um, you will bow the knee. Your tongue will confess. It doesn't matter if you're a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist or a secularist or a materialist or an atheist. It doesn't matter. Your knee will bow. Your tongue will confess that I am Lord to the glory of God the Father. Does that go over well? No. The gospel was then and is now scandalous and offensive. And so we have a temptation to be ashamed of it. We have a temptation to be ashamed of it. But not only the gospel message. The gospel message, yes, it arouses opposition, contempt, and ridicule. But so do the gospel messengers. Now, I don't mean you being tactless and a jerk. Just bracket that out. That's not what I'm talking about. That's on you. Uh, it's not persecution for righteousness sake, it's persecution for you being a jerk, okay? That's really important because those people exist. But there is a, a shame that gospel messengers can feel because let's be real, we've always been weak and unimpressive. <coughs> like it's just been true. And so Paul marches into Rome, this symbol of pride and power. And if we read the New Testament carefully, we can notice a few things about Paul. He's small in stature. He has poor eyesight. He's not a very impressive orator. He's actually kind of unassuming. He's probably a puny little man in many ways. What does he have to offer the global center of power and pride in the known world of his day? And so there's a temptation as messengers to be ashamed as we bring this message of the gospel. Two weeks ago, two weeks ago, I was in a conversation with a not yet believer in Jesus and, and she asked me a really kind and curious question. She said, hey, so what difference did it make in your life when you became a follower of Jesus? I was like, that's like a softball, here I go. <laughs> and so I said, well, listen, you know, before I knew Jesus, I had kind of lived life on my own terms, and, and, and although I sought everywhere I could to find purpose and meaning and belonging and satisfaction, all of them evaded me. And it wasn't until I realized that actually my commitment to doing life on my own was actually rejection of God that I began to be concerned. And so when I came to know Jesus, what happened was he, he, it became clear that he exchanged my brokenness and my rejection 
for his beauty and belonging. And now Jesus gives me a significant amount of purpose and joy and satisfaction in belonging to him. I said something like that. But here's what you didn't hear. The subtext of what I said was, Jesus is a really good option and he's worked for me, maybe he could work for you. Because it's offensive for me to say, hey, by the way, if you don't actually turn and trust Jesus, your life isn't just not only not going to work out now, it's going to be bad for you for a long time. There's an offensiveness. Now, I get it. Maybe that wasn't the time or the place, and there's, there really is a, a being led by the Holy Spirit moment by moment in those conversations, and, and so hopefully that was happening. But I saw in myself a temptation to be ashamed of the gospel, of the harder points, the points that conflict with our culture in certain ways. And so, brothers and sisters, I am ashamed of the gospel when I won't tell other people about Jesus. I'm ashamed of the gospel when I'm too selfish to live a life worthy of it. I'm ashamed of the gospel when anything becomes the center of acceptance in my community. I'm ashamed of the gospel when I affirm any political or social or economic position that denies Jesus' clear teaching about the poor, the immigrant, the marginalized, the widow, the orphan, and the outcast. I'm ashamed of the gospel when I excuse the overtly unchristian behavior of my political heroes. I am ashamed of the gospel when I spend more money on theme park admissions than I do on gospel missions. I'm ashamed of the gospel when I care about my social life than I do about others' eternal life. I'm ashamed of the gospel. So what do we do with that? What do we do with this temptation to be ashamed of the gospel? How do we overcome? Well, look again at verse 16 with me. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You see, this is a gospel of power, but it's important to notice where is, the God, where is the power of God found? It's not in political power. It's not in spending power. It's not in social media influence. It's not in traditional values. It's not in cultural progress. It's not in education. It's not in technology. Where is the power of God found? Where is the omnipotent muscle of God flexed? As it's nailed to a cross. The power of God is shown in the weakness of Jesus Christ. The good news for us is that the power of God is shown in the very place we find ourselves ashamed of the gospel. If we would just offer our weakness, our need, and our helplessness to God as the arena of his life-giving power, we might not be so ashamed of the gospel anymore. We heard it in our call to worship 2 Corinthians 13 verse 4 says that Jesus was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God, for we also are weak in him. Do you know that? Do you know that all of us need all of Jesus for all of life? That we are weak in Jesus, but in dealing with you, we will live by, with him by the power of God. I've said it before, it's, it's 
often not your righteousness, but your repentance that makes Jesus attractive. It's your weakness. It's your acknowledged need for him. That's the place that the gospel power shows up. There's a story of a man named Polycarp, an early church father, about 100 years after Paul wrote this letter. He's on trial for his allegiance to Jesus. And, and he's told, hey, you need to curse Christ and swear allegiance to Caesar or else you're going to be executed. And these are Polycarp's words. 86 years have I served him, and he never did me any wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? And he marched off to his execution. That's what it looks like to be unashamed. I've proven over 86 years that God has been nothing but good to me. That Jesus has been nothing but good to me. That his Holy Spirit has been nothing but showing up in my weakness. So we prove the power of God, not in our power or grasping for power, but in our weakness, in our need, in our helplessness. In those moments when you're tempted to shave off the hard edges of the gospel. But it's also a gospel for all. You saw this in verse 16 already, but look again. It's a gospel for all. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, this is important. Um, This is a distinction that God made, Jew, non-Jew. He made it in the Bible, circumcision, uh, the Bible, like there's all these various ways, dietary restrictions that created this distinction between Jew and non-Jew. And Jesus in the gospel tears down that distinction. So here's the implication. If a God-made distinction is eradicated by the cross of Christ, how much more are man-made distinctions? How much more the ways that we set up dividing lines of hostility, dividing walls of hostility between us and whoever the other is? This is important. Paul actually says this. If you look back at 14, he says, he is committed under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. That's probably nationality and language and culture. He's like, both of them I'm after. But he goes on, he says, also to the wise and to the foolish, to the educated elite and to the uneducated commoner. The gospel is not elitist. It's not elitist. What this means for us here at New City, a fairly wealthy congregation, socioeconomically in the upper class, of the same majority culture of ethnicity, it means we need to pay attention to how any of our rights, truly our rights, and preferences, they might be really good preferences, are hindering us becoming a place where more people could belong to Jesus in our midst, especially people who are unlike us that don't look like me, that don't talk like me, that don't act like me, that don't have the spending power I have? What are things that we unintentionally have set up that create barriers for those people coming and staying and belonging and being cherished in our midst? That's an implication of the gospel because it's a gospel for all. And so it's important because the gospel, as we've said, creates a new way to be human because it creates a new humanity. One new man united in Christ. All of those dividing walls of hostility are torn down. And this is really important because we live in a culture that's trending very quickly towards paganism. And as that happens, 
we're redigging a lot of dividing walls around various identifying factors. And we need to, as people of the gospel, not only speak out against that, but also embody it in our very own midst. That those dividing walls, they might be out there, but they're not in here. Because we are one new humanity in the one and only true and living man, Jesus Christ. That's what it means for the people of God to be a gospel people. Because this is a gospel for all, but, but it's also a gospel of righteousness. Look at verse 17 with me. Verse 17 says, For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What is the righteousness of God? In Nerdville, where I live oftentimes, this is one of the most hotly debated topics in the Bible, okay? So lots of scholars have penned and poured out lots of ink debating what the righteousness of God here means. Let me just give you three options. First, the righteousness of God is an attribute, a divine attribute. It's about God himself. It's about his integrity, his self-consistency. Second, the righteousness of God could be an activity. It's, it's God's saving righteousness. It's him showing up, breaking in, coming to the rescue. Third, it's a divine accomplishment. It is the righteousness that comes from God, a new status conferred, given as a gift to those who are in Jesus. It's one of the three of those. So which one is it? Is it uh, an attribute? Is it an activity? Or is it an accomplishment? Yes. The answer is yes. And the reason I believe that is because Paul unpacks all three of those aspects of the righteousness of God, this diamond that is the righteousness of God that you turn and see various facets. He unpacks that throughout the rest of the book of Romans. So the righteousness of God is God's, his attributes, his activities, and his accomplishments. And all of that comes into full focus on the cross of Jesus Christ. The only place that God can remain self-consistent by forgiving sinners and yet not sweeping sin under the rug is the cross of Jesus. The only place where the saving activity of God is most clearly displayed is in the cross of Jesus Christ. The only place that the accomplishment of God's righteousness fully paying for all of our debts and then granting us a life of love that we never lived, the only place that that comes into full focus is in the cross of Jesus Christ. All three are displayed there. And so the righteousness of God is, is gonna be the, maybe the theme throughout the whole book of Romans. When we say a new way to be human, what we mean is how do you live in light of the righteousness of God? That's what Romans is trying to unpack. This isn't a new interpretation in fact, John Chrysostom in the fourth century said it like this. It is the righteousness of God that is revealed here, not yours. <laughs> Thank God. Not yours. It's God's righteousness that's revealed. A righteousness both abundant and easily accessible. For you do not receive it by toils and labors, but you receive it by a gift from above, contributing one thing only from yourself, namely Believing it. Believing it. So John Chrysostom shows us in the 4th century something that was rediscovered in the 1500s. In August 1513, a monk was wrestling with the Bible, as monks are wont to do, I assume. He was wrestling with the Bible, and he was wrestling with this term, the righteousness of God. And he couldn't understand, how could this be anything but bad news? A righteous God is going to rightly condemn 
unrighteous sinners. And he'd be justified to do it. So the Bible teaches. So how could the righteousness of God be anything but bad news, but darkness for us? As he was meditating on the book of Psalms, and on our text, Romans 1, verse 17, he had an epiphany, a breakthrough. You could say an illumination, like what we pray for before every sermon. And he said this, night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy, God makes us righteous by faith. Of course, that monk is a man named Martin Luther who with this discovery, with this revelation, kicked off the Protestant Reformation, the heart of which was setting people free from a man-made, self-righteous religion. There's a reason why the righteousness of God had to be revealed to us, because we would have never come up with it on our own. Because one, it stops us from boasting in anything that we do on our own, but two, even if we did make this up, you would never believe it. You would never believe in a God who by grace and sheer mercy makes you righteous by faith alone. Because you know your own conscience. You know that part of you that doesn't shut up and ceaselessly accuses you? Oh yeah, that part of you would never believe unless it was revealed, made public, made known, unless it was the self-disclosure of God himself in Jesus on the cross. That's why we need this to be revealed to us. So brothers and sisters, the righteousness of God means that you stand before God as Jesus because Jesus stood before God as you. And you receive that by faith alone. And that's my final point. I don't even want to count them at this point. Look at with me at verse 17 and we'll see a gospel by faith. A gospel by faith. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It all hangs here. All of it stands or falls right here. How do we understand what verse 17 is saying? Are we right with God because of anything in us or done by us? Or do we forsake all of that and, found a, and find a right relationship of God, with God because of all that Jesus is for us and has done for us? That's the question. Do you bring anything to the table except for simple, open-handed receiving of Jesus by faith? The answer, as we'll see this morning and the rest of this series is no, absolutely not. Absolutely do we not stand before God based on anything that we bring to the table. It is all by grace. In fact, the greatest of God's gifts is received with the simplest of human responses. An open hand, a sigh of relief, a relaxing into the hands of Jesus, the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. That's how the greatest of human gifts is given and received. It's why Luther said this, he is not righteous, she is not righteous, who does much, but he, she, who without work believes much in Christ. Not those who do much, but those who believe much are the ones who are made righteous. And so faith is simply confidence in all that Jesus is and does and says. Faith is simply trust that Jesus loves you more than he loves his own life. Faith is if the gospel is the act by which God lays hold on you 
Faith is the human act by which you allow yourself to be laid hold of. It's that simple. It's that simple. And so Paul closes by quoting the Old Testament to show you this isn't new news, it's just good news. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, that means both the righteous shall be, people will become righteous by faith and that's how they will live, but it's also that their life from, from zero to 100, from birth to death, from beginning to end, from start to finish is gonna be one of constantly trusting that Jesus is better than we think he is. That's what that means. From first to last, by faith. And so there's only one division that remains in humanity. Only one. Believers and unbelievers. Those who have admitted that they can't do life on their own and those who have no idea of any other way to do it. And so brothers and sisters, let us be those who by faith lay hold of all that God is for us in Jesus, all that he's done for us in Jesus, all that he's doing among us and all that he will do for us in Jesus. Let's lay hold of that by faith. This morning, afresh, anew, many of you for the first time. I'm praying for that now. Spirit of God, would you grant that people would see the goodness and the freeness of the gospel of Jesus. That some in our midst would would hold on to Jesus, they would trust in Jesus for the first time here. And many of us would renew that trust in Jesus this morning, realizing that it's an open hand, it's a sigh of relief, that the righteousness of God is a gift to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.